Today, we shall present four additional members of the first quorum of 70 to you for your votes. In 1941, five high priests were called to assist the Twelve Apostles in their heavy work and to fill a role similar to that envisioned by the revelations for the First Council of Seventy. The scope and demands of the work at that time did not justify the reconstitution of the First Quorum Seventy. In the intervening years, additional assistance to the Twelve have been added and today we have 21. Commencing a year ago, brethren other than the First Council of Seventy were called into the First Quorum of Seventy, and at present there are 14 in that quorum, including the First Council. Since the functions and responsibilities of the assistance to the Twelve and the Seventy are similar, and since the accelerated worldwide growth of the church requires a consolidation of its administrative functions at the general level, the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, with concurrence from the assistants and the first Quorum of Seventy, have felt inspired to call all of the assistants to the Twelve into the first Quorum of Seventy, to call four new members into that Quorum, and to restructure the First Council of Seventy. You'll see that these changes, which are reflected in the list of general authorities to be read by President Tanner, will be 39 total members of the First Quorum of Seventy, thus providing an, a quorum to do business. With this move, the three governing quorums of the Church, defined by the Revelations, the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Quorum of Seventy have been set in their places as revealed by the Lord. This will make it possible to handle efficiently the present heavy workload and to prepare for the increasing expansion and acceleration of the work, anticipating the day when the Lord will return to take direct charge of his church and kingdom. First, my brothers and sisters, my gratitude to the Prophet and his counselors for this call. To them, to Elder Richards and the members of the First Quorum of Seventy, I pledge that my little footnote on the page of the Quorum's history will read clearly that I wore out my life spreading Jesus' gospel and regulating his Church. To worthy predecessor presidents, my admiration. Thirty years ago, President Dilworth Young ordained me a Seventy but only after extracting a promise that I would preach the gospel the rest of my life. His stern demeanor was such that I felt I'd been asked to jump off a tall building. I went over the side saluting. <laughs> now I salute that same selfless sweet 70, President Young, once again. Now may I speak not to the slackers in the kingdom, but to those who carry their own load and more not to those lulled into false security, but to those buffeted by false insecurity, who, though laboring devotedly in the kingdom, have recurring feelings of falling forever short. Earlier disciples who heard Jesus preach some exacting doctrines were also anxious and said, Who then can be saved? The first thing to be said of this feeling of inadequacy is that it is normal. 
There is no way the Church can honestly describe where we must yet go and what we must yet do without creating a sense of immense distance. Following celestial road signs while in celestial traffic jams is not easy, especially when we are not just moving next door or even across town. In a kingdom where perfection is an eventual expectation, each other's needs for improvement have a way of being noticed. Perceptive Jethro had plenty of data to back up the crisp counsel he gave his son-in-law Moses. Even prophets noticed their weaknesses. Nephi persisted in a major task, notwithstanding my weakness. Another Nephite prophet, Jacob, wrote candidly of his over-anxiety for those with whom he was not certain he could communicate adequately. Our present prophet has met those telling moments when he has felt as if he could not meet a challenge, yet he did. Thus the feelings of inadequacy are common, so are the feelings of fatigue, hence the needed warning about our becoming weary of well-doing. The scriptural advice, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength, suggests pace progress, much as God used seven creative periods in preparing man and this earth. There is a difference, therefore, between being anxiously engaged and being over-anxious and thus under-engaged. Some of us who would not chastise a neighbor for his frailties have a field day with our own. Some of us stand before no more harsh a judge than ourselves, a judge who stubbornly refuses to admit much happy evidence and who cares nothing for due process. Fortunately, the Lord loves us more than we love ourselves. A constructive critic truly cares for that which he criticizes, including himself, whereas self-pity is the most condescending form of pity. It soon cannibalizes all other concerns. Brothers and sisters, the scriptural windows are like a display window through which we can see gradual growth. Along with this vital lesson, it is direction first, then velocity. Enoch's unique people were improved in process of time. Jesus received not of the fullness at first, but received grace for grace, and even he grew and increased in wisdom and stature. In the scriptural display window we see Lehi struggling as an anxious and trembling parent. We see sibling rivalries, but also deep friendships like that of David and Jonathan. We see that all conflict is not a catastrophe. We view misunderstandings, even in rich relationships like that of Paul and Barnabas. We see a prophet candidly reminding a king that there was a time when thou wast little in thine own sight. We see our near-perfect parents, Adam and Eve, coping with challenges in the first family. For their children, too, came trailing traits from their formative first estate. We see a legalistic Paul but later read his matchless sermon on charity. We see a jail John the Baptist, and there had been no greater prophet, needing reassurance. We see Peter walking briefly on water, but requiring rescue from Jesus' outstretched hands. Later we see Peter stretching his strong hand to Tabitha after helping to restore her to life. Moroni was not the first underinformed leader to conclude that another leader was not doing enough. Nor was Pehoran's sweet, generous response to his beloved brother Moroni the last such that will be needed. What can we do to manage these vexing feelings of inadequacy? 
Here are but a few suggestions. We can distinguish more clearly between divine discontent and the devil's dissonance, between dissatisfaction with self and disdain for self. We need the first and must shun the second, remembering that when conscience calls to us from the next ridge, it is not solely to scold but also to beckon. We can contemplate how far we have already come in the climb along the pathway to perfection. It is usually much farther than we acknowledge. True, we are unprofitable servants, but partly because when we have done that which was our duty to do, with every ounce of such obedience comes a bushel of blessings. We can help by accepting help as well as giving it. Happily, General Naaman received honest but helpful feedback not from his fellow generals but from his orderlies. In the economy of heaven, God does not send thunder if a still small voice is enough or a prophet if a priest can do the job. We can allow for the agency of others, including our children, before we assess our adequacy. Often our deliberate best is less effectual because of someone else's worst. We can write down and act upon more of those accumulating resolutions for self-improvement that we so often leave unrecovered at the edge of sleep. We can admit that if we were to die today, we would be genuinely and deeply missed. Perhaps parliaments would not praise us, but no human circle is so small that it does not touch another and another. We can put our hand to the plow, looking neither back nor around comparatively. Our gifts and opportunities differ. Some are more visible and impactful. The historian Moroni felt inadequate as a writer beside the mighty Mahanrai Moriankumar, who wrote overpoweringly. We all have at least one gift and an open invitation to seek earnestly the best gifts. We can make quiet but more honest inventories of our strengths, since in this connection most of us are dishonest bookkeepers and need confirming outside auditors. He who was thrust down in the first estate delights to have us put ourselves down. Self-contempt is of Satan. There is none of it in heaven. We should, of course, learn from our mistakes, but without forever studying the instant replays as if these were the game of life itself. We can add to each other's storehouse of self-esteem by giving deserved specific commendation, more often remembering, too, that those who are breathless from going the second mile need deserve praise just as the fallen need to be lifted up. We can also keep moving. Only the Lord can compare crosses, but all crosses are easier to carry when we keep moving. Men finally climbed Mount Everest, not by standing at its base in consuming awe, but by shouldering their packs and by placing one foot in front of another. Feet are made to move forward not backward. We can know that when we have truly given what we have, it is like paying a full tithe. It is, in that respect, all that was asked. The widow who cast in her two mites was neither self-conscious nor searching for mortal approval. We can allow for the reality that God is more concerned with growth than with geography. Thus, those who marched in Zion's camp were not exploring the Missouri countryside but their own possibilities. We can learn that at the center of our agency is our freedom to form a healthy attitude toward whatever circumstances we are placed in. 
Those, for instance, who stretch themselves in service, though laced with limiting diseases, are often the healthiest among us. The spirit can drive the flesh beyond where the body first agrees to go. Finally, we can accept this stunning, irrevocable truth. Our loving Lord can lift us from deep despair and cradle us midst any care. We cannot tell him anything about aloneness or nearness. Yes, brothers and sisters, this is a gospel of grand expectations, but God's grace is sufficient for each of us. Discouragement is not the absence of adequacy, but the absence of courage, and our personal progress should be yet another way. We witness to the wonder of it all. True, there are no instant Christians, but there are constant Christians. And if we so live, we too can say in personal prospectus, and soon I go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for then shall I see his face with pleasure. For then will our confidence wax strong in the presence of God. And he who cannot lie will attest to our adequacy with the warm words, Well done. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week, as I read through some prospective material for the Ensign magazine, I came to these lines of verse which reflect the reaction of a housewife after her first encounter with some Latter-day Saint missionaries. The sun shone that afternoon, and so did you as I opened the door. Truth standing there, and I concerned about my custard and the kitchen floor. You spoke, memories stirred, and through the windows, darkly, I watched the years and wondered what it was I longed for and why my tears. You went on your way, but something lingered in the air for my pain. I picked up my mop, pretending that things could be the same again. Since receiving a phone call several days ago from President Kimball, and in an attempt to maintain some equilibrium, I've been pretending that things would be the same again for me. I know they will not, and I desire with all my heart the sustaining influence of the Lord and the influence of your faith and prayers as I accept this new assignment. I have told the Lord that I am his to use, however, He sees fit. I've made that pledge to President Kimball, and I'm sustained in that by a loving, faithful wife and a loyal family. I have the consolation of these 
words of promise of the Lord to his earlier servants when he said, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. I bear witness today, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ lives, that this is his work, that President Kimball is indeed the Lord's prophet upon the earth. The Lord will come again to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. May we be worthy to be with those who serve and live with him when that time comes. I pray and solemnly invoke his blessings upon us all this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, the Council of President Kimball and my brethren, as well as the beautiful music and opening prayer, have made this a most inspirational meeting. In connection with my new calling, I am truly appreciative of the confidence placed in me by my Father in heaven and my brethren. I approach this assignment with a deep sense of humility and with full commitment to devote my best efforts in the building of the kingdom of God. To President Dilworth Young and those of the First Council of Seventy, just released, I likewise express my love and appreciation. We're living in a difficult but a remarkable age, the dispensation of the fullness of times. And I am grateful that my spirit was reserved to come forth at this particular time and for the knowledge that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. It is a great privilege to be able to bear witness that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored in its fullness through the instrumentality of the prophet Joseph Smith, and that there is a prophet of God on the earth today, our beloved prophet and president, Spencer W. Kimball. May the Lord bless and sustain him, and may we have the wisdom and courage to follow his counsel. The Church of Jesus Christ was established in the meridian of time and reestablished in this dispensation for two great purposes— First, to proclaim the truth concerning man's salvation to all the world, and second, the perfecting of those who accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. To accomplish the first objective, to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is engaged in a worldwide missionary effort. 
with approximately 150 missions and 24,000 full-time missionaries, with additional thousands of stake and district missionaries, and with the Every Member a Missionary program becoming more effective, the Church is growing at an accelerated rate. Now with reference to the perfecting of the saints, the Savior has asked us to become perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. In modern revelation we are told that we are not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels. Wherefore, continue in patience until ye are perfected. To accomplish the second objective, the perfecting of the saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints provides opportunities for all members to become involved in many different kinds of activities that develop them mentally, morally, physically, and spiritually in the perfection process. A high percentage of the members of the Church are active in the perfection process and are being blessed in many ways. There are, however, many inactive men who do not hold the Melchizedek priesthood. These potential leaders are called prospective elders. We have a great challenge to bring these, our brothers, more actively into the perfection process. President Spencer W. Kimball referring to this challenge in a talk in which he asked members of the Church to lengthen their stride said, The cycles of inactivity and indifference are recurring cycles from father to son. The Church must now break that cycle at two points simultaneously. We must reach out and hold many more of our young men of the Aaronic priesthood to keep them faithful to help them to be worthy to go on missions and to be married in the Holy Temple. We must at the same time reach and hold more of the fathers and the prospective holders of the Melchizedek priesthood. We must find improved ways of vitalizing our Melchizedek priesthood quorums, particularly in order to reach the prospective elders who are, in so many cases, the fathers of so many of our boys and girls and our young men and women." Unquote. This presents a great challenge not only to the priesthood quorums but to the Church as a whole, and it is with reference to this matter that I wish to direct the major portion of my remarks today. Why are these members inactive? I believe the main reasons are, first, they do not understand the gospel, and second, they do not fully appreciate the blessings that come from church activity. Now, what can be done to reduce the number of young men attaining the age of 18 and not being ordained elders? Let me give a few suggestions and examples. We must recognize that the programs of the Aaronic Priesthood Quorums and Auxiliaries, together with the Seminary and Institute programs, are playing a very important role in training these young men. However, their parents, family, and all of us can also have a tremendous influence in their lives. The living example set by parents is consciously and unconsciously absorbed by children. Solomon, in his wisdom, has told us, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. 
Recently, I was staying in the home of a stake president who had a young son, nine years of age. I was sleeping in this young man's bedroom and noticed on his dresser a little cardboard bank with three compartments, one for his tithing, one for his mission, and one for fun. I asked this young man if he was going on a mission, and he replied, that's what I'm saving my money for. I am sure that with this type of planning, he will be worthy to be ordained an elder and prepared for missionary service. I was in another stake president's home one weekend and was sleeping in another boy's room. There on the wall were pictures of all the church temples. He was planning for a temple marriage as well as a mission. Older children also have a great influence upon younger children. A few weeks ago, as I was interviewing a prospective missionary, I asked him, Why do you want to go on a mission? He replied, I know this church is the church of Jesus Christ, and I want to tell others about it. And besides, he said, I'm the oldest child in the family, and I want to set a pattern for my brothers to follow. What a wonderful spirit. And now concerning the many thousands of good men who do not yet hold the Melchizedek priesthood and whom we refer to as prospective elders. Let us not forget that many stake presidents, bishops, high counselors, quorum leaders, and other leaders at one time in their lives were inactive or prospective elders. What caused them to become involved again in the perfection process? Perhaps a few examples will point out some of the important reasons for their return. A reactivated elder recently stood in a fast and testimony meeting and explained what it means to have his firstborn child enter into their home. He said, when I began to realize my responsibility to guide this wonderful little soul through life, I knew that only by honoring the priesthood I had neglected could I be the kind of father I want to be. Recently, a former prospective elder told me what it meant to him for the elders' quorum president to ask him to serve as an assistant secretary in the elders' quorum presidency. He took a week to decide to accept the assignment, but when he did, he marveled at the change that came into his life, and he said, Suddenly I felt not only wanted, but actually needed. I'm convinced that we can lengthen our stride by working with groups of prospective elders in firesides or cottage meetings. These wonderful men can move more rapidly and comfortably into church activity when grouped according to age, education, hobbies, etc., and when approached as compatible groups together with their wives. High priests and seventies can be called upon to assist in teaching and fellowshipping those of similar age groups. Excellent results have been achieved by many elders' quorums in temple teaching project groups. Retreats for prospective elders and their wives with home teachers, quorum officers, and their wives have developed friendships and spirituality that have changed many lives forever. Just a few days ago, a man and his wife, neighbors of ours, who have just been involved in such a temple project group, told us that the results were far beyond their expectations. This particular prospective elder had previously been reluctant, 
but is now preparing to take his family to the temple. They were greatly impressed by the spirit of caring shown by the brothers and sisters involved in the teaching process. Many prospective elders are married to non-member wives. These cases provide an excellent opportunity for the elders' quorum president to arrange for the ward mission leader to assign stake or full-time missionaries to teach the non-member wives with the cooperation and in the presence of the inactive husbands. In my opinion, this missionary approach should be one of our major efforts in accomplishing our objectives, particularly as study is so vital in obtaining a knowledge of the gospel. We should involve prospective elders in church activities, even though at first assignments may be of a minor nature. I recall listening to thrilling reports from prospective elders and new converts who were assigned jobs to raise and lower the chapel flag each day or to keep the songbooks in repair, or to assist quorum's officers. And in each instance, the persons involved were happy and had very worthwhile experiences. In conclusion, let me share with you some of the feelings of a prospective elder who has recently come into full church activity. He writes, Returning to church activity after years of absence would have been impossible without a lot of help. I'll always be grateful for that evening when my elders' quorum president came to my home and said, Roger, starting next Sunday evening, we are having two other couples over to our home once a week to talk about some important gospel principles. We would be pleased if you and Pat would join us. I know it took courage for him to invite us, but that was an important beginning. That was the first time anyone had ever asked me to get back into church activity. In those fireside meetings, my wife and I learned things about the gospel that we had never understood before. When testimonies were expressed, we felt feelings that had been dulled by many years of inactivity. As we started having family prayers together, we felt a special spirit enter into our home. Before long, I became so anxious to learn about the gospel that I found myself reading the scriptures on the bus going to and from work, and in, even during my noon hour. His letter then tells the great joy he and his wife felt when they went to the temple where they and their children were sealed together for time and for all eternity. And now they are helping prepare their three sons for missionary service. To you who are not now involved in church activity, we extend to you our love and want you to know how eager we are to share with you the blessings of the priesthood and the gospel. There will never be a better time than now to become active in the process of self-perfection. I promise you it will bring you peace, happiness, and joy, along with growth and development. May all of us seek to perfect our lives in the pattern of the Savior, and may we help each other in the perfection process I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There are times in our struggle with adversities, 
of mortality, when we become weary, weakened, and susceptible to the temptations that seem to be placed in our pathways. A lesson for us lies in the account of the life of the Savior. Soon after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wild, uncultivated wilderness. There he remained for forty days and nights, preparing himself for the formal ministry which was then to begin, the greatest task ever to be accomplished in this world lay before him, and he needed divine strength. Throughout these days in the wilderness he chose to fast, that his mortal body might be completely subjected to the divine influence of his Father's Spirit. When Jesus had completed the fast of forty days and had communed with God, he was in this hungry and physically weakened state to be left tempted of the devil. That, too, was to be part of his preparation. Such a time is always the tempter's moment when we are emotionally or physically spent, when we are weary, vulnerable, and least prepared to resist the insidious suggestions he makes. This was an hour of danger the kind of moment in which many men fall and succumb to the subtle allurement of the devil. Satan's first temptation was to entice Jesus to satisfy his craving for food, that most basic physical, biological need. It was a temptation of the senses, an appeal to appetite and in many ways the most common and most dangerous of the devil's allurements. If thou be the Son of God, he said, command that these stones be made bread. During the long weeks of seclusion, the Savior had been sustained by the exaltation of spirit that would naturally accompany such meditation, prayer, and communion with the heavens. In such a devoted spirit, bodily appetites were subdued and superseded, but now the demands of the flesh were inevitable. Satan was not simply testing Jesus to eat. Had he suggested, go down out of the wilderness and obtain food from the bread maker, there would have been no temptation because undoubtedly Jesus intended to eat at the close of his fast. Satan's temptation was to have him eat in a spectacular way, using his divine power, powers for selfish purposes. The temptation was in the invitation to turn stones into bread miraculously, instantaneously, without waiting or postponing physical gratification. His reply to the tempter was crystal clear. 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then followed the second temptation. Realizing that he had utterly failed in his attempt to induce Jesus to use his divine powers for personal, physical gratification, and had seen Jesus defer totally to the will and spirit of his Father's sustenance, Satan went to the other extreme and tempted Jesus to wantonly throw himself upon the Father's protection. He took Jesus into the holy city, to the pinnacle of the temple overlooking the spacious courts and people below, and quoted scripture, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. There lurked in this appeal from Satan another temptation of the human side of mortal nature, the temptation to perform some dazzling feat, some astounding exploit which might bring crowds of amazed and attentive onlookers surely leaping from the dizzy heights of the temple turret and landing in the courtyard unhurt would be such a feat. This would be public <clears throat> recognition that Jesus was a superior being and did have a message from on high. It would be a sign and a wonder, the fame of which would spread like wildfire throughout all Judea and cause many to believe that the Messiah had indeed come. But faith is to precede the miracle. Miracles are not to precede the faith. Jesus, of course, answered scripture for scripture by replying, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Once more the purposes of Satan were thwarted, and Christ became the victor. In his third temptation, the devil casts away all subtlety and scripture and all deviousness and disguise. Now he staked everything on a blunt, bold proposition. From a high mountain he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them the cities, the fields, the flocks, herds, and everything nature could offer. Though they were not his to give, Satan offered them all to Jesus, to him who had lived as a modest village carpenter. With wealth, splendor, and earthly glory spread before them, Satan said unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. In a final ploy, Satan was falling back on one of his false but fundamental propositions, one which resulted in his leading one-third of the hosts from heaven 
and continues to direct his miserable efforts against the children of men here on earth. It is the proposition that everyone has a price, that material things finally matter most, that ultimately you can buy anything in this world for money. Jesus knew if he were faithful to his Father and obedient to every commandment, he would inherit all that the Father hath, and so would any other son or daughter of God. The surest way to lose the blessings of time or eternity is to accept them on Satan's terms. Lucifer seems to have forgotten that this is the man who would later preach, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In power and dignity, Jesus commanded, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Anguished and defeated, Satan turned and went away. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, Luke adds, he departed from him for a season. Matthew tells us that angels came and ministered unto him. And so with Jesus, so with us. Relief comes and miracles are enjoyed after the trial and temptation of faith. There is, of course, running through all of these temptations, Satan's insidious suggestion that Jesus was not the Son of God. The doubt implied in the tempter's repeated use of the word if. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. These, of course, were foreshadows of that final desperate temptation, which would come Three years later, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. But Jesus patiently withstood that ploy also, knowing in due time every knee would bow and every tongue confess. It was not necessary then or ever for Jesus to satisfy the curiosity of man least of all unholy man. So as victory in every encounter came to Jesus, the pathos and tragedy of Lucifer's life is even more obvious, first bold and taunting and tempting, then pleading and weak and desperate, finally and untimely simple banishment. The question now is for us. Will we succeed? Will we resist? Will we wear the victor's crown? 
Satan may have lost Jesus, but he does not believe he has lost us. He continues to tempt, taunt, and plead for our loyalty. We should take strength for this battle from the fact that Christ was victorious, not as a god, but as a man. It is important to remember that Jesus was capable of sinning, that he could have succumbed, that the plan of life and salvation could have been foiled, but that he remained true. Had there been no possibility of his yielding to the enticement of Satan, there would have been no real test, no genuine victory in the result. If he had been stripped of the faculty to sin, he would have been stripped of his very agency. It was he who had come to safeguard and ensure the agency of man. He had to retain the capacity and ability to sin, had he willed so to do. As Paul wrote, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And he was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. He was perfect and sinless not because he had to be, but rather because he clearly and determinedly wanted to be, as the Doctrine and Covenants recorded, records. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed to them. What about us? We live in a world of temptation, temptation that seems more real and oppressively rampant than any since the days of Noah. Are we remaining faithful in such a world? Every individual in this church should ask himself, Am I living so that I am keeping unspotted from the evils of the world? <clears throat> in speaking of the three temptations that came to Jesus, a former president of the church made uh, this statement concerning them. Classify them and you will find that under one of those three, nearly every given temptation that makes you and me spotted, ever so little maybe, comes to us as <clears throat> one, a temptation of the appetite, Two, a yielding to the pride and fashion and vanity of those alienated from the things of God. Or three, a gratifying of the passions, or a desire for the riches of the world, or power among men. And then continuing, he said, Now when do temptations come? Why, they come to us in our social gatherings. They come to us at our weddings. They come to us in our politics. They come to us in our business relations, on the farm, in the mercantile establishment, in our dealings in all the affairs of life. We find these insidious influences working. And it is when they manifest themselves to the consciousness of each individual that the defense of truth ought to exert itself. 
Is it just for an individual? Or can a body of people withstand the temptations of Satan? Surely the Lord would be pleased with the saints if they stood before the world as a light that cannot be hidden, because they are willing to live the principles of the gospel and keep the commandments of the Lord. With faith and prayer and humility and sources of strength from an eternal world, we are able to live unspotted in the midst of a world of temptation. With the psalmist we will sing, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May this be our destiny. I pray in the name of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.